Chapter Nine of the Dealings of Captain Sharkey and Other Stories of Pirates by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. The Fiend of the Cooperage. It was no easy matter to bring the gamecock up to the island, for the river had swept down so much silt that the banks extended for many miles out into the Atlantic. The coast was hardly to be seen when the first white curl of the breakers warned us of our danger, and from there onwards we made our way very carefully under mainsail and jib, keeping the broken water well to the left, as is indicated on the chart. More than once her bottom touched the sand. We were drawing something under six feet at the time, but we had always way enough and luck enough to carry us through. Finally the water shoaled very rapidly, but they had sent the canoe from the factory, and the crew-boy pilot brought us within two hundred yards of the island. Here we dropped our anchor for the gestures of the negro indicated that we cannot hope to get any farther. The blue of the sea had changed to the brown of the river, and, even under the shelter of the island, the current was singing and swirling round our bows. The stream appeared to be in spate, for it was over the roots of the palm trees, and everywhere upon its muddy, greasy surface we could see logs of wood and debris of all sorts, which had been carried down by the flood. When I had assured myself that we swung securely at our moorings, I thought it best to begin watering at once for the place looked as if it reeked with fever. The heavy river, with muddy, shining banks, the bright, poisonous green of the jungle, the moist steam in the air, they were all so many danger signals to one who could read them. I sent the longboat off, therefore, with two large hogsheads, which should be sufficient to last us until we made St. Paul de Luanda. For my own part, I took the dinghy and rowed for the island, for I can see the Union Jack fluttering above the palms to mark the position of Armitage and Wilson's trading station. When I had cleared the grove, I could see the place, a long, low, whitewashed building, with a deep veranda in front, and an immense pile of palm oil barrels heaped upon either flank of it. A row of surf boats and canoes lay along the beach, and a single small jetty projected into the river. Two men in white suits, with red cummerbunds round their waists, were waiting upon the end of it to receive me. One was a large, portly fellow with a grayish beard. The other was slender and tall, with a pale, pinched face, which was half concealed by a great mushroom-shaped hat. Very glad to see you, said the latter, cordially. I am Walker, the agent of Armitage and Wilson. Let me introduce Dr. Severall, of the same company. It is not often we see a private yacht in these parts. She's the gamecock, I explained. I'm owner and captain. Meldrum is the name. Exploring, he asked. I am a lepidopterist, a butterfly catcher. I've been doing the west coast from Senegal downwards. Good sport, said the doctor, turning a slow yellow-shot eye upon me. I have forty cases full. We came in here to water, and also to see what you have in my line. These introductions and explanations had filled up the time, whilst my two crew-boys were making the dinghy fast. Then I walked down the jetty with one of my new acquaintances upon either side, each plying with questions, for they had seen no white man for months. What do we do? said the doctor, when I had begun asking questions in my turn. Our business keeps us pretty busy, and in our leisure time we talk politics. Yes, by the special mercy of Providence, Severall is a rank radical and I am a good stiff unionist, and we talk home rule for two solid hours every evening. And drink quinine cocktails, said the doctor. We're both pretty well salted now, but our normal temperature was about 103 last year. I shouldn't, as an impartial adviser, recommend you to stay here very long, unless you are collecting bacilli as well as butterflies. The mouth of the Ogawai River will never develop into a health resort. There is nothing finer than the way in which these outlying pickets of civilization distill a grim humor out of their desolate situation and turn not only a bold, but a laughing face upon the chances which their lives may bring. Everywhere from Sierra Leone downwards I had found the same reeking swamps, the same isolated fever communities, and the same bad jokes. 
There's something approaching to the divine in the power of a man to rise above his conditions and to use his mind for the purpose of mocking all the miseries of his body. Dinner will be ready in half an hour, Captain Meldrum, said the doctor. Walker's gone in to see about it. He's the housekeeper this week. Meanwhile, if you like, we'll stroll around, and I'll show you the sights of the island. The sun had already sunk beneath the line of palm trees, and the great arch of the heaven above our head was like the inside of a huge shell, shimmering with dainty pinks and delicate iridescence. No one who has not lived in the land where the weight and heat of the napkin became intolerable upon the knees can imagine the blessed relief which the coolness of evenings brings along with it. In this sweeter and purer air the doctor and I walked around the little island, he pointing out the stores and explaining the routine of his work. There's a certain romance about the place, said he, in answer to some remark of mine about the dullness of our lives. We are living here just upon the edge of the great unknown. Up there, he continued, pointing to the northeast, Dukailu penetrated and found the home of the gorilla. That is the Gaboon country, the land of the great apes. In this direction, pointing to the southeast, no one has been very far. The land which is drained by this river is practically unknown to Europeans. Every log which is carried past us by the current has come from an undiscovered country. I've often wished that I was a better botanist when I have seen the singular orchids and curious-looking plants which have been cast up on the eastern end of the island. The place, which the doctor indicated, was a sloping brown beach, freely littered with the flotsam of the stream. At each end was a curved point, like a little natural breakwater, so that a small shallow bay was left between. This was full of floating vegetation, with a single huge splinter tree lying stranded in the middle of it, the current rippling against its high black side. These are all from up-country, said the doctor. They get caught in our little bay, and then when some extra fresh it comes, they are washed out again and carried out to sea. What is the tree? I asked. Oh, some kind of teak, I should imagine, but pretty rotten by the look of it. We get all sorts of big hardwood trees floating past here, to say nothing of the palms. Just come in here, will you? He led the way into a long building with an immense quantity of barrel staves and iron hoops littered about it. This is our cooperage, said he. We have the staves sent out in bundles, and we put them together ourselves. Now, you don't see anything particularly sinister about this building, do you? I looked around at the high corrugated iron roof and white wooden walls and the earthen floor. In one corner lay a mattress with a blanket. I see nothing very alarming, said I. And yet there's something out of the common, too, he remarked. You see that bed? Well, I intend to sleep there tonight. I don't want a buck, but I think it's a bit of a test for nerve. Why? Oh, there have been some funny things going on. You were talking about the monotony of our lives, but I assure you that they are sometimes quite as exciting as we wish them to be. You'd better come back to the house now, for after sundown we begin to get the fever fog up from the marshes. There, you can see it coming across the river. I looked and saw a long tentacle of white vapor writhing out from among the thick green underwood and crawling at us over the broad swirling surface of the brown river. At the same time the air turned suddenly dank and cold. There's the dinner gong, said the doctor. If this matter interests you, I'll tell you about it afterwards. It did interest me very much, for there was something earnest and subdued in his manner as he stood in the empty cooperage, which appealed very forcibly to my imagination. He was a big, bluff, hearty man, this doctor, and yet I detected a curious expression in his eyes as he glanced about him, an expression which I would not describe as one of fear, but rather of a man who was alert and on guard. By the way, said I as we returned to the house, you have shown me the huts of the good many of your native assistants, but I have not seen any of the natives themselves. They sleep in the hulk over yonder, the doctor answered, pointing over to one of the banks. Indeed. I should not have thought in that case that they would need the huts. Oh, they used the huts until quite recently. We've put them in the hulk until they've recovered their confidence a little. They were all half mad with fright, so we let them go, and nobody sleeps on the island except Walker and myself. What frightened them, I asked. 
Well, that brings us back to the same story. I suppose Walker has no objection to your hearing all about it. I don't know why we should make any secret about it, though it is certainly a pretty bad business. He made no further allusion to it during the excellent dinner which had been prepared in my honor. It appeared that no sooner had the little white topsail of the gamecock shown round the Cape Lopez that these kind fellows had begun to prepare their famous pepper pot, which is the pungent stew peculiar to the west coast, and to boil their yams and sweet potatoes. We sat down to as good a native dinner as one could wish, served by a smart Sierra Leone waiting boy. I was just remarking to myself that he at least had not shared in the general fright when, having laid the dessert and the wine on the table, he raised his hand to his turban. Anything else I do, Massa Walker? he asked. No, I think they should be all right, Musa, my host answered. I'm not feeling very well tonight, though, and I should much prefer if he would stay on the island. I saw a struggle between his fears and his duty upon the swarthy face of the African. His skin had turned of a livid purplish tint, which stands for pallor in a negro, and his eyes looked furtively about him. No, no, Master Walker, he cried at last. You better come to the hulk with me, sir. Look after you much better in the hulk, sir. That won't do, Musa. White men don't run away from the post when they are placed. Again I saw the passionate struggle in the negro's face, and again his fears prevailed. No use, Massa Walker, sir, he cried. So help me, I can't do it. If it was yesterday, or if it was tomorrow, but this is the third night, sir, and it's more than I can face. Walker shrugged his shoulders. Off with you, then, said he. When the mailboat comes, you can get back to Sierra Leone, for I'll have no servant who deserts me when I need him most. I suppose this is all mystery to you, or has the doctor told you, Captain Meldrum? I showed Captain Muldrum the cooperage, but I did not tell him anything, said Dr. Severall. You're looking bad, Walker, he added, glancing at his companion. You have a strong touch coming on you. Yes, I have had the shivers all day, and now my head is like a cannonball. I took ten grains of quinine, and my ears are singing like a kettle. But I want to sleep with you in the cooperage tonight. No, no, my dear chap, I won't hear of such a thing. You must get to bed at once, and I am sure Meldrum will excuse you. I shall sleep in the cooperage, and I promise you that I'll be round with your medicine before breakfast. It was evident that Walker had been struck by one of those sudden and violent attacks of remittent fever, which are the curse of the West Coast. His sallow cheeks were flushed and his eyes shining with fever, and suddenly as he sat there he began to croon out a song in the high-pitched voice of a delirium. Come, come, we must get you to bed, old chap, said the doctor, and with my aid he led his friend into his bedroom. There we undressed him, and presently, after taking a strong sedative, he settled down into a deep slumber. He's right for the night, said the doctor, and we sat down and filled our glasses once more. Sometimes it is my turn, and sometimes his. But, fortunately, we have never been down together. I should have been sorry to be out of it tonight, for I have a little mystery to unravel. I told you that I intended to sleep in the cooperage. Yes, you said so. When I said sleep, I meant watch, for there will be no sleep for me. We've had such a scare there that no native will stay after sundown, and I mean to find out tonight what the cause of it may be. It has always been the custom for a native watchman to sleep in the cooperage, to prevent the barrel hoops being stolen. Well, six days ago the fellow who slept there disappeared. We have never seen a trace of him since. It was certainly singular, for no canoe had been taken, and these waters are too full of crocodiles for any man to swim to shore. What became of the fellow, or how he could have left the island, is a complete mystery. Walker and I were merely surprised, but the blacks were badly scared, and queer voodoo tales began to get about amongst them. But the real stampede broke out three nights ago, when the new watchman in the cooperage also disappeared. What became of him? I asked. Well, we not only don't know, but we can't even give a guess which would fit the facts. The nigger swears there is a fiend in the cooperage who claims a man every third night. They wouldn't stay in the island. Nothing could persuade them. Even Musa, who's a faithful boy enough, 
would, as you have seen him, leave his master in a fever rather than remain for the night. If we are to continue to run this place, we must reassure our niggers, and I don't know any better way of doing it than by putting in a night there myself. This is the third night, you see, so I suppose the thing is due, whatever it may be. You have no clue, I asked. Was there no mark of violence, no blood stain, no footprints, nothing to give you a hint as to what kind of danger you may have to meet? Absolutely nothing. The man was gone, and that was all. Last time it was old Ali, who had been the wharf tender here since the place was started. He was always as steady as a rock, and nothing but foul play would take him from his work. Well, said I, I really don't think this is a one-man job. Your friend is full of laudanum, and come what might, he can be of no assistance to you. You must let me stay and put in a night with you in the cooperage. Well, now, that's very good of you, Meldrum, said he heartily, shaking my hand across the table. It's not a thing I should have ventured to propose, for it's asking a good deal of a casual visitor. But if you really mean it... Certainly I mean it. If you'll excuse me a moment, I will hail the gamecock and let them know that they need not expect me. As we came back from the other end of the little jetty, we were both struck by the appearance of the night. A huge, blue-black pile of clouds had built itself up upon the landward side, and the wind came from it in little hot pants, which beat upon our faces like the draft from a blast furnace. Under the jetty, the river was swirling and hissing, tossing little white spurts of spray over the planking. Confound it, said Dr. Severall. We are likely to have a flood on top of all of our troubles. That rise in the river means heavy rain up-country, and when it once begins, you never know how far it will go. We've had the island nearly covered before now. Well, we'll just go see that Walker is comfortable, and then if you like, we'll settle down in our quarters. The sick man was sunk in a profound slumber, and we left him with some crushed limes in the glass beside him, in case he should awake with the thirst of fever upon him. Then we made our way through the unnatural gloom thrown by that menacing cloud. The river had risen so high that the little bay which I had described at the end of the island had become almost obliterated through the submerging of the flanking peninsula. The great raft of driftwood, with the huge black tree in the middle, was swaying up and down the swollen current. "'That's one good thing a flood will do for us,' said the doctor. "'It carries away all the vegetable stuff which it brought down on the east end of the island. It came down with the freshet the other day, and here it will stay until the flood sweeps it out into the main stream. Well, here's our room, and here are some books, and here's my tobacco pouch. We must try and put in the night as best we may. By the light of our single lantern, the great lonely room looked very gaunt and dreary. Save for the piles of staves and heaps of hoops, there was absolutely nothing in it, with the exception of the mattress for the doctor, which had been laid in the corner. We made a couple of seats and a table out of the staves, and settled down together for a long vigil. Several had brought a revolver from me, and was himself armed with a double-barreled shotgun. We loaded our weapons and laid them cocked within reach of our hands. The little circle of light and the black shadows arching over us were so melancholy that he went off to the house and returned with two candles. One side of the cooperage was pierced, however, by several open windows, and it was only by screening our lights behind staves that we could prevent them from being extinguished. The doctor, who appeared to be a man of iron nerves, had settled down to a book, but I observed that every now and then he laid it upon his knees and took an earnest look all around him. For my part, although I tried once or twice to read, I found it impossible to concentrate my thoughts upon the book. They would always wander back to this great, empty, silent room, and to the sinister mystery which overshadowed it. I racked my brains for some possible theory which would explain the disappearance of these two men. There was the black fact that they were gone, and not the least tittle of evidence as to why or whither. And here we are waiting in the same place, waiting without an idea as to what we were waiting for. I was right in saying that it is not a one-man job. It was trying enough as it was, but no force upon earth would have kept me there without a comrade. What an endless, tedious night it was. 
Outside we heard the lapping and gurgling of the great river, and the soughing of the rising wind. Within, save for our breathing, the turning of the doctor's pages, and the high shrill ping of an occasional mosquito, there was a heavy silence. Once my heart sprang into my mouth, as Severall's books suddenly fell to the ground, and he sprang to his feet with his eyes on one of the windows. Did you see anything, Meldrum? No. Did you? Well, I had a vague sense of movement outside that window. He caught up his gun and approached it. No, there's nothing to be seen, and yet I could have sworn that something passed slowly across it. A palm leaf, perhaps, said I, for the wind was growing stronger every instant. Very likely, said he, and settled down to his book again. But his eyes were forever darting little suspicious glances up at the window. I watched it also, but all was quiet outside. And then suddenly our thoughts were turned into a new direction by the bursting of the storm. A blinding flash was followed by a clap which shook the building. Again and again came the vivid white glare with thunder at the same instant, like the flash and roar of a monstrous piece of artillery. And then down came the tropical rain, crashing and rattling on the corrugated iron roofing of the cooperage. The big hollow room boomed like a drum. From the darkness arose a strange mixture of noises, a gurgling, splashing, tinkling, bubbling, washing, dripping. Every liquid sound that nature can produce from the thrashing and swishing of the rain to the deep, steady boom of the river. Hour after hour the uproar grew louder and more sustained. My word, said Severall, we're going to have the father of all floods this time. Well, here's the dawn coming at last, and that is a blessing. We've about exploded the third night superstition anyhow. A gray light was stealing through the room, and there was the day upon us in an instant. The rain had eased off, but the coffee-colored river was roaring past like a waterfall. Its power made me fear for the anchor of the gamecock. "'I must get aboard,' said I. "'If she drags, she'll never be able to beat up the river again.' "'The island is as good as a breakwater,' the doctor answered. "'I'll give you a cup of coffee if you'll come up to the house.' I was chilled and miserable, so the suggestion was a welcome one. We left the ill-omened cooperage with its mystery still unsolved, and we splashed our way up to the house. There's the spirit lamp, said Severall. If you would just put a light to it, I will see how Walker feels this morning. He left me, but was back in an instant with a dreadful face. He's gone, he cried hoarsely. The word sent a thrill of horror through me. I stood with the lamp in my hand, glaring at him. Yes, he's gone, he repeated. Come and look. I followed him without a word, and the first thing I saw as I entered the bedroom was Walker himself lying huddled on his bed in a gray flannel sleeping suit in which I had helped to dress him the night before. Not dead, surely, I gasped. The doctor was terribly agitated. His hands were shaking like leaves in the wind. He's been dead some hours. Was it fever? Fever! Look at his foot! I glanced down, and a cry of horror burst from my lips. One foot was not merely dislocated, but was turned completely round in a most grotesque contortion. Good God, I cried, what could have done this? Several had laid his hand upon the dead man's chest. Feel here, he whispered. I placed my hand at the same spot. There was no resistance. The body was absolutely soft and limp. It was like pressing a sawdust doll. The breastbone is gone, said Severall in the same awed whisper. He's broken to bits. Thank God that he had the laudanum. You can see by his face that he died in his sleep. But who could have done this? I've had about as much as I can stand, said the doctor, wiping his forehead. I don't know that I'm a greater coward than my neighbors, but this gets beyond me. If you're going out to the gamecock... Come on, said I, and off we started. If we did not run, it was because each of us wished to keep up the last shadow of his self-respect before the other. It was dangerous in a light canoe on that swollen river, but we never paused to give the matter a thought. He bailing and I paddling, we kept her above water, and gained the deck of the yacht. 
There, within two hundred yards of water between us and this cursed island, we felt that we were our own men once more. "'We'll go back in an hour or so,' said he. "'But we need a little time to steady ourselves. I wouldn't have had the niggers see me as I was just now for a year's salary.' "'I've told the steward to prepare breakfast. Then we shall go back,' said I. "'But in God's name, Dr. Severall, what do you make of it?' "'It beats me. Beats me clean. I've heard of voodoo deviltry, and I've laughed at it with the others. But that poor old walker, a decent, God-fearing, nineteenth-century, Primrose League Englishman, should go under like this without a whole bone in his body? It's given me a shake. I won't deny it. But look there, Meldrum. Is that hand of yours mad or drunk? Or what is it?' Old Patterson, the oldest man of my crew, and as steady as the pyramids, had been stationed in the bows with a boat hook to fend off the drifting logs which came sweeping down with the current. Now he stood with crooked knees, glaring out in front of him with one forefinger stabbing furiously at the air. Look at it, he yelled. Look at it! And at that same instant, we saw it. A huge black trunk was coming down the river, its broad glistening back just lapped by the water, and in front of it, about three feet in front, arching upwards like the figurehead of a ship, there hung a dreadful face, swaying slowly from side to side. It was flattened, malignant, as large as a small beer barrel, and a faded fungoid color, but the neck which supported it was mottled with dull yellow and black. As it flew past the gamecock in the swirl of the waters, I saw two immense coils rope out of some great hollow in the tree, and the villainous head rose suddenly to the height of eight or ten feet, looking with dull, skin-covered eyes at the yacht. An instant later the tree had shot past us and was plunging with its horrible passenger toward the Atlantic. "'What was it?' I cried. "'It is our fiend of the cooperage,' said Dr. Severall, and he had become in an instant the same bluff, self-confident man that he had been before. "'Yes, that is the devil who has been haunting our island. It is the great python of the Gaboon.' I thought of the stories which I had heard all down the coast of the monstrous constrictors of the interior, of their periodical appetite, and of the murderous effects of their deadly squeeze. Then it all took shape in my mind. There had been a freshet the week before. It had brought down the huge hollow tree with its hideous occupant. Who knows from what far distant tropical forest it may have come. It had been stranded on the little east bay of the island. The cooperage had been the nearest house. Twice with the return of its appetite it had carried off the watchman. Last night it had doubtless come again, when Severall had thought he had saw something move at the window. But our lights had driven it away. It had writhed onwards and had slain poor Walker in his sleep. Why did it not carry him off? I asked. The thunder and the lightning must have scared the brute away. There's your steward, Meldrum. The sooner we have breakfast and get back to the island, the better, or some of those niggers might think that we have been frightened. End of chapter 9